I'm going to read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 this morning. If you want to turn there with me, we'll choose one verse in this short chapter for a text, but we'll read all ten verses for context, it being a short chapter. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Silvanius and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that we were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to Godward is spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus which delivered us from the wrath to come. The focus verse will be verse 5 for our text. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And we're going to title the message, The Power of the Gospel. The Power of the Gospel. The Thessalonians were a very close group of believers to the Apostle Paul. Many others were, all the churches were, but if you read the Thessalonian letters, it seems to me, my personal opinion, that there was a extra special place in his heart for the Thessalonians. They had a love relationship that was as strong or stronger than any church it seemed like Paul wrote to. But laying that aside, Paul says, and it was Paul's conviction in verse 4 before our text, that these individuals were indeed the elect of God and had been elected by God from the foundation of the world. So when he speaks of his conviction of their election, he is speaking of his conviction of their salvation, and they cannot be saved without being born again, so he is convicted and convinced that they indeed have genuinely been born again. So it seems like from the statement here, which in itself is unique, Paul not making another statement exactly like this concerning anybody, he is convinced that if anybody has ever been saved by the grace of God, born again and elected by God from the foundation of the world, it is these people in this church that he is writing to. That in and of itself is quite a conviction. Now, I say that statement and I'll put it to you like this. Who and how many would you be convinced of? And that you could freely, honestly, and with all confidence say, 
this person, that person, he or she, I am convinced, has been elected of God. Well, I'll tell you, I would have been more bold in years past to do that than I am now. For the simple reason, sadly, that so many who I would have said that of before are not here and now, but are back in the world or somewhere else. That's a sad thing. But nevertheless, that was Paul's conviction of these people. And if that be so, and Paul being led by the Holy Spirit to write this of them, then again, we're talking about a great power that God manifested through Paul and the gospel to make them and manifest them to be what they were not before. Now, God has manifested the power of the gospel in many and great ways, has He not? I mean, we read the book of Acts and we stand in awe of that great manifestation of power that accompanied not just the apostles, but that the Holy Spirit brought upon those to whom the gospel was preached. I mean, I have read it many times, and I'm sure you have. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people converted. I'd like to see three converted today, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? And I'm not... I'm just saying that, that we might think and rejoice. But 3,000. I mean, what did it take? What kind of power did it take? Well, it's all recorded for us. We know it's all there in Acts 2, isn't it? To convert those Hellenistic Jews from 16 different places. And they all heard the gospel in their own language. And the same power was upon all 16 different groups or diversities there. And we see this throughout the book of Acts. There's another account in the book of Acts about about 5,000 believe. Right? And when we look at history and we look at Paul's missionary journeys and what have you, this is what we're seeing during the apostolic time is God sovereignly sending men into regions where the gospel has not been and when individuals heard in these cities or in these regions the gospel, there were many groups, many numbers of people who believed it, like the Thessalonians, and left their idolatrous practices of the past and wholeheartedly embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ and became churches that Paul wrote to. So that power is in the New Testament. That's what the New Testament is all about in that regard. Now, you, I'm sure, as I, in particular as a minister, have a desire to see that. I mean, who would we be if we did not have that desire? May we always have that desire. Whether we ever see it, and I must admit, I have not seen that kind of power that we read about in New Testament times. I have not seen that kind of power of, of conversion manifested that I have read about in history under other men's ministries, in revivals, in various places, in various continents where God used certain men, certain individuals and all to bring 
great numbers of people to himself, sheep into the fold. We should pray for that. When we pray for revival, that's what we're praying for. Not just that the churches be revived, but when the churches are revived is when the churches are used to bring people into the kingdom. We realize this is all God's doing, don't it? You can't plan it, you can't predict it. God does it as it sovereignly pleases. I wish He was doing it here and now like I read about in the New Testament, but I don't see it in our nation like it was happening then and in other, even in the world. But nevertheless, let us aspire for that and pray for that, that God would be glorified in that. But, however, whether it's three, three hundred, three thousand, or one, let me emphasize this at the beginning of our title here. It's the same power. It's the same power and grace that saves one sinner that would save a million in a heartbeat. Okay? So, so let's not get the numbers out of proportion with the power. It's the same power that saved 3,000 by Peter preaching on one occasion, on one day, one message. It was the same power that opened the heart of Lydia by one apostle to one person. Okay? So you know something of that power if you're saved today. It doesn't have to be a large group of people. These Thessalonians and the text we have chosen here and look at today got the full power of the gospel. And so have all who have been saved. But I mean, it wasn't a partial power, you know? I mean, and we could use the analogy again of like an artillery barrage. You know, I mean, you fire every gun with the biggest bullet you got as fast as you can. You know, and that's what we would call giving them everything you got, you know? I kind of think of that when I read this verse and it talks about how the gospel came to the Thessalonians. There was nothing held back in reserve. It came in the fullness of its power. And again, it wasn't a partial amount of that power that just saved your soul. No, no. It came in the fullness of that power. Okay? And when it comes that way, whether it's you or them or whoever it is, it has the same effect that we see about here because it's the same divine source and it accomplishes the same thing. Now the text here, and I would just say that, you know, as we begin, how has the gospel come to you? And I don't know who will hear this today. But if you're hearing it, the gospel is coming to you. It may be coming to somebody that will hear this the first time. I don't know. God is at His own discretion to take what I say or preach or any church puts out there and taking it to the four winds of the earth. But I know one thing. It only takes the gospel by one person to one other person to save that person. It can come in the fullness of that power. So today, don't think that the power that came and saved you is different from the power that came and saved them. No, it's the same power. 
And it's got the same ingredients. And our text says that the gospel came not to them, first of all, in word only, but in power, in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance. And those are the things we want to look at. So the first thing Paul says is our gospel came not to you in word only. Now, this is where we start. This is a jumping off point. We talked in Sunday school. The church has been commissioned. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have committed. That is the Great Commission, is it not? So, we take the gospel to sinners in that regard. That is the preaching, the declaring, the proclaiming, even if it's in print or audible, to sinners. So, the gospel comes in word. That's the point. That's the normal way. And in fact, that is the God-ordained way. 1 Corinthians, that scripture that we always refer to, to Remind us of that. It's 1 Corinthians 1 and 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. We could throw Romans 1 16 in there. But verse 121 there of 1 Corinthians, for after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Now, preaching is not foolish, it appears to be foolish. All right, But it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. So God didn't do it man's way. God did it God's way. And He did it the least <laughs> wise way in men's eyes. But worldly wisdom will pass away. So, the gospel comes came not just in word only to them, but we realize the word is the way the gospel comes to anybody. It's God's ordained means. And I want to also say it is accompanied by testimony. I think this sometimes gets left out, but do notice in the latter part of verse 5 it says, As you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. Now, Paul and his companions didn't come to the Thessalonians like fish oil salesmen, okay? Or used car salesmen, you know? They weren't, they weren't smiling from ear to ear and dressed up in some eccentric way and using, you know, great big speeches and what have you and trying to market something. Paul never marketed the gospel. The gospel is not to be marketed. But today it's marketed. God forbid we market the gospel. So it was accompanied by a testimony. What manner of men we were among you for your sake. Paul didn't come with such obvious conduct, mannerism, speech, or anything else that would immediately turn off his hearers. He came in a humble, loving, gracious, diligent manner. A testimony. Bottom line is what I'm saying is when the gospel is presented in word, it needs to be backed up in work. And Paul said this in the second chapter 
just turn there, look over there on the same page probably. Verse 9, second chapter, verse 9. For you remember, brethren, our labor and travail for laboring night and day because we would not be chargeable to any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also how holily and justly and unblameable we behaved ourselves among you that believe. He wasn't trying to get something from them. He wasn't trying to solicit them or fleece them or, or he wasn't in it for his own self. Those two verses prove that beyond any shadow of a doubt. In fact, I'll give you another one that Paul said to the Corinthians, which was his manner and speaks of it. 2 Corinthians 1 and 12, For our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world and more abundantly to you. And remember, conversation means your conduct, your way of life. They behave themselves in a humble, godly manner, not in a cheap manner, not in an eccentric manner, not in a way of trying to sell them or get to them something. So the gospel came to them not just in word only, but Bottom line, these were men who were practicing the very thing they were preaching. That, that's what I'm talking about. They weren't a bunch of hypocrites, and the Thessalonians saw that. All right. We recognize that this is the bare minimum way that the gospel comes to anybody. Right? I mean, Romans 10 makes it very clear. Romans 10, 13 through 16, I'll just put it out there. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And I'm going to paraphrase a little, but how are they going to call on Him in whom they've not believed? And how are they going to believe of Him of whom they've not heard? And how they may hear without a preacher? And how will they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that, them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for His eyes saith, Lord, who hath believed our report. So faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So there's where you and I come in, there's where the church comes in, is that we bring the gospel accompanied by testimony to the ears and to the eyes of the unbelieving. Now that's about the scope of our ability. <laughs> that's just about where it ends with us. And no matter how diligent, how fervent, how sincere, how accurate, and all the other things that we are to be, we can't produce an effect in and of ourselves. But we are to be the messengers. We are to be the mouthpiece. We are to be the feet that walks before them in that regard. But sadly, you and I both know and we know it from Bible times, and we know it from history, and we know it from Israel. When the gospel comes, the majority of the time, it comes in word only. And by that, we would say it just comes in one ear and then quickly goes out the other. It usually doesn't have the desired effect, does it? Well... Would we say then it lacked power? No, I'll get to that in a moment and tell you that the gospel can come in power in the man and the message and still conversion may not come to pass. In other words, and I've seen this and I'm sure you probably have too, 
the gospel can have an effect, but it might only be a temporary effect. It will not. It may not be what we see here. In fact, most times it's not. You remember when Paul preached to old Felix, and the Bible says that he trembled. I mean, he got shook up. And the gospel can shake somebody up. It used to shake me up. It shook me up as a kid a lot of times before I was saved. Hell shook me up. The possibility of the Lord coming and me being left behind shook me up. Uh, Dying shook me up. Lots of things concerning the gospel shook me up. But I wasn't converted. It quickly passed away. And what do Felix say? Paul, I'll hear you another day, another time. That's all for now, you know. Well, that's just like the seed that falls by the wayside. The birds just quickly come and gobble it up. Satan, you know, wants to gobble up those words out of the minds of those who hear the gospel just as quickly as they go in one ear. He wants to snatch them right on through out the other ear. He didn't want that word to be there any time, any time whatsoever for them to be convicted by. And then, of course, we got people like Judas Iscariot and his repentance. You know, it, it was a repentance of sorts, but it wasn't a real thing. So, the bottom line is the gospel came not to the Thessalonians in word only, but we realize most of the sowing of the seed of the gospel, that's how it comes and that's as far as it goes. And the bottom line is that's as far as we can take it. But, to get right into the heart of our message, the gospel came also, he says, in power. Now that is our desire. That is our prayer. That is our hope. And when we pray for lost people and you pray for somebody that's lost, that should be your prayer that God would make the message of His Son powerful to them. That it would not come in one ear and go out the other ear. And it don't matter how powerful an orator is, he cannot affect that message into the heart of of an unbeliever. That is the work that is a divine work. It is not a human work of the messenger, nor of the hearer. But it is God's work. When we're talking about power here, remember, we're talking about strength. We're talking about might. We're talking about power that will affect, bring about a desired change. You and I don't have that power. The Word of God does. The Holy Spirit does. The Father does. Jesus does. But you and I don't have that power. And it's foolish for me to think I have that power. I mean, I'd be beating my head against the wall. And many think they do, but they don't. The gospel came also in power. Let me give you some things of how it came. First of all, before it came in saving power, it came in the power of the messenger. Paul and whoever was with him, I don't remember when he came to Thessalonica. Uh, Paul and Silas to Thessalonica should have been Barnabas or Silas. It's not straight in my mind right now, forgive me. But the bottom line is, the message is not only powerful, but the messenger God gives power. I I would equate this simply uh, to like what God said to Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 1 7, the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child, for thou shalt go um, to all I shall send thee, and whatever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Where is it? Verse 9. The Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. Now, if the word is powerful, 
and God puts that word in a man, then, then that man goes forth with power. And the Bible, we can spend a lot of time here, and I don't have the time to do it, to show that effect that Elijah and Jeremiah and the prophets and John the Baptist and the apostles and others preach with power. But the unction that God gives me or gives you or gives another man to share the gospel with somebody else, that's, that power that we have, we can't communicate to them to save them. That's just in our delivery of the gospel message. And in that regard, you might also remember when Jesus sent out the disciples in Matthew chapter 10. He said, and they're going to persecute you and this, that, and other. And said, don't worry about what you're going to say. When you get, when you get in a time where you've got to say something, I'll give you what to say. Well, there's power in that, isn't there? I mean, because we're powerless. And I'll tell you one of the biggest things I'll confess here, I'm telling you, the thing that, that, that still, I say frets, uh, concerns me every time I get in this pulpit is whether or not the power will be there. Because I come into the pulpit without power. And when I was a young preacher, it was worse than it is now. I've got some experience in years under my belt now and God has richly enabled and it's easier to depend on Him now than it was back then. When you're so wet behind the ears. And I'm not saying I'm dry behind the ears now. But again, if God calls you, you're always going to be concerned about that. If you're conscientious about delivering the truth in the right way, saying the right thing the right way, the most accurate way, and wanting to be God's mouthpiece. Many times I tell Brenda this, well, it seems good now. We'll find out when we get there, you know. Will God bring that power? Well, Paul was empowered, and so was his companions, to deliver the message. And the Word had power simply because of this also. Remember this. Whether anybody believes it or not, there's power in the Word, in the Gospel, for one reason. It's truth. Now, I'm not saying a lie is not powerful. A lie can be very powerful. But the truth is powerful in a positive manner. I want to say to you, and you hear me today, when this life is over and you draw your last breath and I draw mine, you know what's all that's going to matter? Truth. Truth! Did you have it? Did you know it? That's all that'll matter. I heard somebody say this week, you know what people need to know? They need to, they need to be asking themselves three questions. John MacArthur said this. I've said it. I agree with it. You know, anybody needs to ask themselves, where would I come from? What am I doing? And where am I going? Well, you know, when you answer those, if truth's not in there, then it didn't amount to a hill of beings. Truth on anything is all that matters. That's the wisdom. That's the understanding of, of the book of Proverbs, the first nine chapters. What difference does it make if it ends up all being lie? Truth has positive, eternal consequences. Now again, I'll say to you quickly here, lies are extremely powerful, but in a negative, damaging way, you see. So again, Paul preached to these people. I preach. Any man of God that preaches the truth hopes to preach in the power of God for us and the word we speak, if it's true, it is powerful simply because it's true. And if it's true, it is powerful. 
And it may not have a desired effect on one person that hears it. But nevertheless, those two things are true. That power is in those two places. However, in, in order to prove that, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. You see the power there? I mean, set the captives free. It's truth that does that. Lies have never done that. Lies take you into bondage. And no matter what it is, if it's a time of day, you just got took into bondage. Truth liberates. Do you know of anything that can liberate anything without some energy, some effort, some power? Truth is the most powerful thing there is. The gospel is synonymous with the truth. What we anticipate and what we're desirous of and what happened to these Thessalonians was there was power upon the hearers. Now that's what we pray for. You know, I mean, if you're going to talk to somebody about the Lord or the gospel, you want to pray, Lord, Lord, empower me. Lord, Lord, make the words that I speak truth, that that power would be there. But Lord, I pray that your power may be upon those who hear it. That's where the problem always lies is with the hearer, right? If the truth is there, why aren't they saved? The problem lies in the hearer, not upon the word. Remember the parable of the sower. There was no problem with the seed, was there? Nowhere. It brought forth fruit only when it fell upon good ground. Power upon the hearers. What do I mean? Well, we know that the Bible says that sinners are dead in trespasses and sin. We know we're preaching to people who are spiritually dead. Who cannot hear, will not hear, don't want to hear, cannot decipher what we're saying unless God manifests His power upon them. It's referenced in Scripture as the opening of the ears, as the opening of the eyes, as the circumcision of the heart. Now let me put it to you like this. I mentioned Lydia earlier, Acts 16 and 14. Paul went out there and preached. One man preached the gospel message to a group of women. I don't know if there was three or 30 or 300 on the riverbank, but you know what the Bible says? The Bible says he opened one woman's heart. Whose heart the Lord opened that she attended under the things spoken of by Paul. I don't know if another one that happened to him or not, but I know there's one that did. And that's what we're talking about. There was power upon her to hear. And instead of it going in and going out, it went in and didn't come out. And that's, folks, I tell you, I love that scripture and I love our text. Because I don't know how God, the Holy Spirit, could have written it any simpler. I mean, can you? God opened her heart. If you're saved today, that's the only explanation. God opened your heart. He opened your ears. He opened your eyes. He called you out of darkness into the light. You didn't do none of it. I didn't do none of it. It's His power. It says, well, and then somebody says, well, well, how does that happen? Well, I'm glad you asked because that's the next thing. It came in the Holy Ghost. That power, that empowerment of the Word to one while not to the other is only explained by the Holy Spirit. 
You hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. Quicken means made alive. John 6, 63 says, It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. We're born not of the will of God, not by the will of man, but of the spirit of God in that respect. Remember the conversation with Nicodemus and Jesus? You must be born again. And it's the Spirit that does it. It's like the wind. It's an invisible, mysterious work that you better be careful. If you go any further than saying it's mysterious and invisible, you've probably crossed the line into territory you don't know what you're talking about. That's the best way I know to describe it. I could also say it's miraculous. <laughs> I could say it's life-changing and all those other things that accompany this divine work. But the bottom line is the Holy Spirit is the agent of the new birth. And if the Holy Spirit don't bring about the new birth, the gospel will never be heard. The gospel will be dead. It will not be powerful to those that hear it. But it was powerful to Lydia because the Holy Spirit opened her heart, opened her ears, opened her eyes, pricked her conscience, however you want to put it. All of those things are synonymous with the new birth. And the power of the gospel was manifested to these Thessalonians. Because, and I, again, I don't know how God, the Holy Spirit, could have put it in any simpler terms. When we read about the armor of God in Ephesians 6 and verse 17, it says, And take with you the word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit. It didn't say it was my sword. I'm, I'm not going to split hairs here and say that the Bible is not my sword as a preacher. But it's more the Spirit's sword than it is my sword. Let me tell you, the Spirit of God can do more with it than I've ever done with it. And without the Spirit of God, I can't do nothing with it. Think of that. The sword of the Spirit. The Word, the Gospel, the truth. And when this came to be settled in my mind, in my heart, this doctrine of this, what I'm talking to you about, about the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration and conversion and empowering the gospel here in our text, one word has always stuck in my mind. And I think part of it is, is kind of from John Bunyan's book, uh, the second part, Christiana. And that word is impale. You know, it, something that is impaled is the sword or the knife is pierced thoroughly. It's driven in to the body, you know, deeply, fatally, bringing about a dramatic change, death in many cases. And if you remember that, Christiana, when the post came and said, with the message that, you know, the Master has called you, I forget what the wording is going to be there, it says that that message was gently with some, it didn't say swords, but some sharp instrument slowly just inserted into her heart in such a gentle way that it just, I mean, there was no violence in it. When you read that, it is so precious. The Holy Spirit takes the gospel of Jesus Christ the sword in the hand of the Spirit impales sinners. It gets where you and I can't go. 
This is why Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is quick and powerful, more powerful than a two-edged, sharper than a two-edged sword, dividing asunder even the joints and the marrow and the bones. I've whacked a lot of bones with a lot of sharp knives, and I've never had one that I could just whack through a bone, not a big bone. But that's speaking of something there we don't know nothing about, don't it? I mean, what power does it take and what instruments does it take to divide asunder the joints and the marrow of a bone where nothing can stop it? That tells us of the power of the God, the power of the gospel in the Holy Spirit's hands. Let me pause here and say again, as a messenger, you and I can only take the message to the intellect and to the mind of sinners. The Holy Spirit takes it so much deeper. It is the Holy Spirit that affects it to the heart and to the conscious. And that is our target, you and I, but we come up short unless empire of the Holy Spirit. Now I want to pause here also and say, really think of this with me. There is no other power that can do this. The gospel of Jesus Christ, that message of glad tidings, has a power the equivalent of nothing else. Nothing else is its match. You can take all the philosophies of the world and put them together, and they don't have a thimble full of the power the gospel has to change or transform a person in their life. Same way as psychology, same way with all the education of the world, and most especially false prophets, false religions, false doctrine. What do they do? I'm going to put it bluntly. It's all shallow. It brainwashes. Okay? It brainwashes. Philosophy goes to the mind and the reasoning and that's where it changes people and changes their thinking and changes their lives. So do cults, false prophets, false leaders. It's only in the mind, in the head. Say, but these people have a faith and they're converted. It's only head deep. It doesn't go to here, in the heart. With the heart, man believes. Hell will be brimming full and running over with people who have believed intellectually. Whose faith was intellectually. Who, as we would say, it only went skin deep or brain deep. But it didn't go to the heart. The gospel. And let me add this. All of these things only reform the person. They reform the person, they reform their lifestyle. And you can see that. Oh, this person quit doing this and they, they became a Buddhist and then they're doing all these things. Or this person used to live like this and they joined the Catholic uh, church and now they're doing this type of stuff. And, and on and on and on we could go, right? It's only a head belief. Rites and rituals do not transform people. But the gospel does. This is the power of the gospel. This is what sets the gospel of Jesus Christ different from everything else there is out there, there ever has been out there, and there ever will be out there. And if you put it all together, it still wouldn't even begin to make a thimbleful in comparison. Because the power of the Holy Spirit doesn't affect the external person first. It goes to the heart and transforms from within. 
Everything that's false works its way from the outside trying to work it in and it can't do it and it never gets there. It don't have the power. Heresies cannot work their way from the outside into the transforming of a person's soul and eternal life and all that. Only the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ does. And it doesn't start out here. It starts in here and works out. That's what makes it so unique. Not a reform without, but a transforming from within. That's what's meant in power. Much assurance, quickly here, and we'll wrap this up. It came in much assurance. What is it talking about here? Well, what is assurance? What are you sure of today? Are you sure of your name? Are you sure of where you live? Are you sure the sun is the sun? I mean, what all kind what are you really positively 100% sure of? Well, we have to be careful when we ask that question, don't we? We really do. But the main thing, of course, is be about sure of your soul. But the bottom line is, if you're 100% sure of it, you are absolutely convinced. Your mind's not going to be changed. You, you have accepted it as it is, what it is. Uh, you may would have liked for it to be different than it is, but nevertheless, you accept it this is the way it is. You are assured of that. You are convicted. You are convinced. And you are persuaded, and there is no doubt. Well, Paul says that's how the Word and the power of the Gospel and the Holy Spirit came to them. Now, you think about this. Think of the miracle of this. Think of the power of this. The supernatural, divine work of this. These people had never heard this message before in their life. They probably never heard of Jesus Christ, the name, unless it was just a name in the news. Okay? And here comes a man telling them something that is as far-fetched as far-fetched can be. They've never heard anything like it. They've never seen anything like it. It's different, unique from anything they've ever heard. And yet they wholeheartedly embrace it with full assurance, full confidence, as if they had known it from the time they could have walked. That is powerful. That is miraculous. They heard it. They were convicted, convinced, persuaded without any shadow of doubt. This is true. Now think about it. What if they had 40 years old and been practicing idolatry in Thessalonica? And at the drop of the hat, they're going to give up 40 years of teaching and say, this is right and that's wrong. And yesterday they had never even heard of it before. That's the power of the gospel. And it's nothing short than one word, faith. That's the only thing that makes it possible. It is the impartation in the new birth by the Holy Spirit of believing faith, saving faith, enabling faith to believe the gospel message of Jesus Christ, which is, by the way, humanly unbelievable. But in the power that we're talking about, it is the power of God unto salvation. The proof of their convincing of it without any doubts. I mean, I got to give me a second or two here, okay? How many things have you heard or been exposed to spontaneously that you've never heard or believed before 
that you just drop down and wholeheartedly embrace it with every fiber of your being. We're not prone to do that. <laughs> we are skeptics. I mean, again, we could go to little kids and say, yeah, little kids are following because they don't have any understanding. They don't know no better. They'll believe anything. They'll, they'll do it. You know, I mean, they're so naive. But human beings don't do that. Adults don't do that. You don't give up something you've thought all your life at the drop of a hat or on a whim and say, okay, all right, yeah, that's all wrong and this is right. I mean, people don't do that. But the power of the gospel does that in people. And again, it's called faith. Faith. The proof of this that is all real, I'm just going to give it to you very quickly here. Verse 6. He became followers of us. Well, you know, anybody can follow anybody else, right? I mean, cults are full of that. You know, they got people following them. Heresies, false prophets, and all that. But, not with this. They received the word. They didn't reject it. And notice this. It wasn't easy. It's in much affliction. I, I, I can't go into detail what all that meant, but there was a lot of people that didn't believe it. And there may have been a lot of uh, uh, banning and doing away and disinheriting people if you did believe it. You know, in idolatry, that's what happens a lot of times. So it wasn't an easy thing. It came with a cost and they did it anyway. And with the joy of the Holy Spirit. I've got to say this. You look at most religions, most cults, messages of folks, most false prophets, most heresies, most, and all that stuff, you don't see no joy. For a very good reason. <laughs> the Holy Spirit's not there. There's no real joy there. And some of the superficial joy they have, is, it's just that. It's superficial. I mean, are Muslims happy, joyous people? Are people that are... Uh, I have to say it. The Catholic Church. Those rites and ceremonies are people just bubbling over with joy. Do you have joy here today? Do you have joy hearing the things I'm talking about? About the power of the gospel? Well, why do you have it and they don't? You're where it's at, I'll tell you. The Holy Spirit. The joy of the Holy Spirit. They don't have it because the Holy Spirit ain't over there. Now, I didn't go out there and say the Holy Spirit ain't in some Catholic. I'm saying the Holy Spirit is not in the teachings of the Catholic Church and in the priesthood and in the Pope and all of that because it's contradictory to the Word of God. That's how I know. The Spirit of truth does not live in the apartment of error. Okay? He lives in the temples of believers, the bodies of believers. All right, I've got to leave that. We've got to finish up here. But with the joy of the Holy Ghost. Man, that, that's part of the power of the gospel. It brings joy. The truth will make you free. And falsehood puts you in bondage and will put a frown on your face. Verse 7 and 8, I've just got to sum it up. Fruit bearing. They were examples. They sounded out the word of the Lord. They not only heard it, believed it, and accepted it, they told others about it. Verse 9. Here's one of the most best proofs that you'll ever see of the power of the Gospels. They turned to God from idols. Wow. 
Now that's that severing of the joints and the marrow of the bones right there. Dividing us under the soul and the spirit. And only God can do that. You can't be torn from your idol and neither can I from mine and neither can anybody else except by the power of God. Let me tell you. A preacher can't do it. A church can't do it. A religious system can't do it. And there ain't a teaching in the world that can do it. I mean a man, a woman will hold on to their idol, whatever they are, like Rachel did, till their dying breath, whatever that idol is. It consumes you. But the Word of God, thank God, the power of the Holy Spirit, the grace of God can sever you from any idol. Amen. It does, doesn't it? That's why we're here. They turned to God to serve the living and true God, the God they'd never heard of before, idol worshipers. And as if that's not enough, and we could just stop right there and say, well, we don't need no more proof. We have verse 10. And they were waiting with hope for the appearing of the Savior that they had heard about but had never seen. Again, that faith in practice, giving them hope and patience. Let's conclude. How has the gospel come to you? In word only or in power? What kind of power? The power of the Holy Spirit? In much assurance? If if it came to you that way, then the same thing always happens. That person is converted. Becomes a follower of Christ. Has the joy and peace of the Holy Spirit in knowing that when you die... You're going to go be with Him. And you live in anticipation. And you want to share it with others. All the things that they had, you will have. God bless His word.